This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about our main story, actually. On this week's episode, there won't be any laugh out loud headlines, which I know you look forward to. Okay, maybe it's more accurate to say that on this week's episode, there won't be any somewhat successful jokes. Instead, we're going to jump right into our interview. It's a lengthy one, so we're giving it the room it deserves. Enjoy. Our main story today concerns the role of journalism in cybersecurity. Most everything about cybersecurity, the threats, the vulnerabilities, the breaches and the blunders, those things don't happen in a vacuum. And the public doesn't learn about those things because threat actors advertise their exploits, or because companies trumpet their lackluster data security practices. No, we often learn about cybersecurity issues because of reporting. For instance, we learned from reporting by Bloomberg that the ride-hailing company Uber once paid $100,000 to conceal a 2016 data breach that exposed the personal data of 57 million users. We learn from reporting by the Huffington Post that the shadowy company building an enormous private facial recognition database, Clearview AI, coordinated early on with self-avowed white supremacists. And, of course, in 2013, we learn from reporting by The Guardian that the digital surveillance apparatus of the United States extended much further and far deeper than previously assumed. These are not small stories. This is not news coverage for only a subset of IT professionals, network administrators, and coders. And that's because cybersecurity and the news about it affects all of us. We learn about whether our products are safe to use. We read about how to safely browse online. And we try to understand why an app might suddenly disappear from the Apple App Store. Today, to help us better understand the role of journalism in cybersecurity, how the public's attention has broadened over many years, how a cybersecurity threat is deemed newsworthy, and how to avoid advice that serves no one, we're talking to Alfred Ng, senior reporter for CNET, and Seth Rosenblatt, editor-in-chief for The Parallax. Seth, Alfred. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. To help our listeners better understand your careers, can you tell us a little bit about what you do, you know, who you write for, and how long you've been reporting on cybersecurity? And so let's start with Seth. Sure. So I've been involved in journalism since before I graduated college. Graduated in 99, got a gig working in online journalism, but for a, a local town network, uh, which was called a portal back then in the Boston area. And there were like uh, 90 papers, small town papers, each with, you know, circulations between, you know, five and maybe 15,000, except for a couple of very big ones. You know, I would write news headlines and teasers for stories. And occasionally when I had extra time, I'd, I'd do reporting as well. And then I left Boston in 02 and I moved to Japan uh, to teach English and, and run a travel blog. And then in 2006, I came back to SF, where I'm from, and uh, landed a gig at CNET. And I was on the CNET reviews team uh, for, I think, maybe five, maybe six years of my time there, and then uh, moved over to the news team and uh, covered cybersecurity and privacy uh, and Google, in fact, uh, for, for a hot minute. 
and left in 2015 to found the Parallax, which is a, a cybersecurity and privacy uh, news magazine format uh, site. Uh, we fo we focus more on uh, longer features and uh, getting into the the second day story on uh, the first day. Alfred, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I've been working at CNET covering cybersecurity and privacy for the last three years now. And before that, I was covering crime um, for the New York Daily News. And they kind of just fell into each other. You know, I came into CNET not really writing about cybersecurity, but I was you know, tasked with writing just breaking tech news. And a lot of the times that happens to be crime. And I was rarely interested in that. And then it just got to me more writing about cybercrime than it became, you know, issues about security with, you know, companies getting ransomware attacks and things like that. And then it just, I just dived into the beat completely. And now, you know, anything that touches cybersecurity or privacy, I'm usually jumping on that. So it, it's a whole mix of things. So, you know, things like ransomware or a, a company suffering a data breach or, the Senate trying to propose a new uh, facial recognition bill. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to cover every aspect of it for CNET. And uh, right now, my main focus is on election security. But, you know, we'll see where my attention goes after November. <laughs> gotcha. Let's get right into it. As I was talking about in the intro to this show, right, cybersecurity has sort of affected so many parts of our life that every type of news or almost every beat uh, has a cybersecurity insert into it. I, I I used to be a legal affairs reporter and I remember, you know, six, seven, eight years ago that that slowly changed into our law firms getting hacked, our law firms getting hit with ransomware. And it seems like the attention towards cybersecurity has grown a lot, um, even so much so that, you know, the Washington Post has a newsletter, the Cybersecurity 202, and it's about cybersecurity, cybersecurity policy, things that are going on in Congress. So what I'm asking here is, how has the public's attention and awareness of cybersecurity and online privacy changed from what you've seen in the past five to 10 years? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I, you know, I think that there's not really been a single watershed moment as big as uh, the Snowden revelations. You know, it was the summer of 2013. They, you know, dropped almost out of nowhere and confirmed so much of what people uh, who had been paying attention to the issue had suspected, but n never had the proof for. And the revelations themselves were controversial, not just for what they revealed about the NSA and the US government, but also for which journalists uh, Edward Snowden chose to trust with breaking the stories. You know, and, and there were some established news orgs, and there were also uh, you know, upstart news orgs uh, like Glenn Greenwald at The Intercept, who, you know, is now roiled in controversy of his own. There's really nothing that I can think of that was quite that large. And it led to so many changes, uh, one of which I think was a heightened perception of cybersecurity and privacy issues, you know, among uh, U.S. news consumers. And, you know, the hits, you know, as they say, just kept coming. Uh, there was the very unusual at the time, a breach of, of Sony, uh, I think it was a year later, because of the film about North Korea, and North Korea wanted to retaliate. There were a lot of cybersecurity reporters at the time uh, who you know, did not think that North Korea was, was capable or was really interested in doing that kind of thing. There were you know, so many, uh, subsequently, so many breaches. These things really sort of kept snowballing until the 2016 election, and then with the Russian interference, 
it's now become, you know, part of the lingua franca of American news reporting. Yeah, Alfred, uh, we got a great kind of breakdown there from Seth, but I'm wondering, does that ring true? Did you see similar things um, from what Seth was saying? Uh, I can tell just anecdotally that that rang true for me when I was, again, I, I just used to report on law firms and, you know, the law firms that companies hired. And suddenly with the Snowden disclosures, I now had to be asking, you know, companies not, you know, okay, who are you hiring for this litigation? But is any of this stuff true? And does it break the law? And so I just wanted to get your input. You know, what did you see, you know, over the past five to 10 years about how the public has started to pay more attention to cybersecurity news? Yeah, my um, benchmark for when something becomes completely mainstream and is not, you know, a very niche topic anymore is when there become like memes about it that are really obscure, but like everyone just gets, right? So uh, have you seen these uh, these FBI uh, listening memes? Yeah, uh, things where like folks are just saying like, dear FBI agent, I think is that, but but let me know. Yeah, what, what yeah, is it? Like? Yeah, it's, there's, there's like, there's like a running meme right now. I don't know how old it is. I saw it like several months ago, but basically the, the running joke is that, you know, every U.S. citizen is assigned an FBI agent that watches over them. So like the joke would be something like me waving to my FBI agent uh, before I go to bed. And it's like them, you know, looking at their at the, the webcam on their laptop and, you know, things like, you know, somebody writing, you know, I'm not feeling so well. And then, you know, they get a prompt from like your FBI agent saying like, hey, cheer up today, like that kind of thing. <laughs> That to me was was like a big, you know, um, impression of, of what these Snowden revelations ha- have brought onto the culture where, you know, it's not just, you know, something that cybersecurity reporters or people that are very involved in tech are, are aware of now. This is something that, you know, teens in schools are very comfortable making jokes about, which, you know, 2013 would have been incredibly creepy. But the point is, is that, you know. This is this is just an accepted reality now, which is incredibly unfortunate. But yeah, it's like Seth said, you know, there's so many parts of cybersecurity and privacy that that kind of just forced their way into our lives. You know, you 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 think about the the election in 2016. You think about you know a half, more than half of the American population having their information stolen from the Equifax breach, or you know a handful of of hospitals and services just just shutting down because of the WannaCry ransomware attack, and it it, it becomes you know people didn't go to cybersecurity news like cybersecurity news came into like our lives, and and you know obviously that that with that comes an increased role in journalism to help explain all this because this is not. This is not like simple stuff. Yeah. Right. I, you know, I think one thing that's really important to bring up is, and I'm really glad Alfred uh, went to the memes, because the meme issue, I, I think, is great. It, it shows that people are aware of things. But I also think that there is an incredible amount of uh, nihilism when it comes to understanding cybersecurity and privacy. There's a lot of of joking of, you know, oh, the NSA is watching or, you know, don't worry about writing this down. The NSA will have a recording of it for later, you know, which is cute, but also I think really disempowers consumers of cybersecurity and privacy news. And it, and, you know, one of the things that that really drove this home for me was uh, I I was doing a story in 2017 on the protests being organized by teenagers, uh, school walkouts and, and so on because of, of uh, Trump's inauguration. And I was uh, not exactly surprised, but I was incredibly disappointed to learn that they were organizing using Instagram direct messaging. And Instagram DMs, I mean, 
you know, what a great way for simple communication, but I wouldn't trust anything, you know, related to operational security, uh, you know, such as, you know, conducting a protest against the president using it. And I think that's, you know, the, this attitude that it just doesn't matter that you're going to be spied on, that you're going to be surveyed and the potential chilling effect on, uh, you know, on freedoms that that can have is really something that as, as cybersecurity reporters, we need to do better to communicate to the people who are going to be affected most. We're not going to have tens of thousands of senior citizens out on the streets. Uh, we're going to wind up having, you know, tens of thousands of uh, Gen Zers and, you know, and, and, you know, later millennials. And for the, for people like that to know that this stuff is important and to still not care, I, you know, I think is, is really a concerning issue where we are as as journalists covering this beat. I think that segues super well, right? And so the next thing we wanted to look at, which is just that broad question here, right? What is, you know, in your view, the role of journalism in cybersecurity? Because I think really plainly, right, there's the basic answer of, oh, it's, it's to tell the news, right? But a lot of what you've said here, right, is that you know, there are things that you can do better on. There's things to be wary of, uh, like cybersecurity nihilism, for one. And and there's also a lot of stuff out there that is educational, like directly educational. There's there's recommendations for products that aren't, they're not bought by advertisers. It's just people who are like, look, this VPN is good. This VPN is bad. Um, there's people who are doing reviews and helping you understand why things are cybersecure or not. So I, I wanted to, again, just ask that question and broaden it out uh, and trying to get your you know, your perspectives here, which is, again, what is the role of journalism in cybersecurity? And Alfred, let's start with you this time. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of ways to, to go in here on that. You know, when, when you think about with privacy, right, there's a lot of cybersecurity articles that are out there that are saying, you know, oh, if you want to stay private on Google or Facebook, go to your settings and do this, this, and this. But then there's another approach to it where, you know, this is the school of thought that I'm really subscribe to here with, with these kinds of articles is that I, I often think that they're kind of counterproductive because it's kind of, you know, putting the burden on, on the user rather than the industry itself, right? Like, for example, you shouldn't be forced to go through all of these settings just to get privacy to begin with. You can serve the role uh, as an educator in cybersecurity and say, hey, you can go to your settings and do all of these things to make yourself better. Or there's other ways that you can do it where you can say you can work on an article or something saying, you know, this is how the entire industry works. And this is why it's on by default. And, you know, you should try to you should try to advocate maybe for, you know, a, a change in the way that the privacy laws are or something. So there is this issue of like advocacy in journalism that, you know, it, it's it's definitely a thin line to walk here. But I, I think that there are some roles where you can say you can just kind of give it on the surface level of here are the things that you, you personally can do. But also here are the things that the entire ecosystem is built around that, you know, makes it difficult for you to do these things in the first place. I often mm -hmm. give this analogy of if I wrote a guide of, you know, how to breathe underwater, like. Yeah, if you get the scuba gear and you get, you know, the oxygen tank and everything, like, yeah, like, it's feasible for you to breathe underwater. But like, somebody at some point should point out, you know, this ecosystem is not built for you to do that. And I feel like that's what the role of um, journalism in cybersecurity should be. But, um, you know, I, I understand that there is a place for, you know, the day to day, this is what you can do right now kind of stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Seth, I, I also wanted to get your perspective on this, particularly because of the Parallax, like you said, as a as a second day sort of magazine type outlet, where it's mm-hmm. it's diving deeper. It's trying to look at context, look trying to analyze. Uh, and so I wanted to say, yeah, understand your viewpoint here as well, particularly with that lens. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, Alfred was 100% correct in in saying that you can certainly write how-tos and explainers and they only go so far if you're not also exposing the deeper underlying issues. And you know what, what, what's really fascinating about this particular angle is that it, I think it drives home the fact that ultimately cybersecurity journalism is business journalism. We're simply writing about a particular niche in, you know, in, in the technology business. And what's, what, what's, what I think is so great about it is that there are so many different ways of, of explaining what is important. But if you don't talk about the role that the corporations who control so much of cybersecurity these days, you know, have to play, and when they do things right and when they do things wrong, you know, you're, you're, you're not quite giving the full picture to your audience. You know, one thing that comes to mind are, you know, like, like Alfred mentioned, uh, cybersecurity privacy settings. You can go into Google, Facebook, you know, Apple, whatever. But ultimately, what these companies are trying to do is put the burden of privacy on the end user. And the kinds of tools that are available to grab back privacy from these corporations really haven't changed dramatically in the past 20 years. You still need to use lockers, you know, as browser plugins mm-hmm. uh, for ads and, and trackers. Using a VPN is a good idea in certain circumstances. Using a free VPN is a shockingly bad idea under almost every circumstance, you know, and so on. And so there, there, there are, you know, to talk about VPNs and not talk about why the free VPN is a bad idea, you know, or to talk about setting your, you know, your Chrome privacy and not talk about what Google gets out of Chrome, um, I, you know, I think is, is, you know, really uh, not benefiting uh, consumers at all. Yeah, when I when I write about you know uh, Android apps that take you know your data even though you don't give them permissions to do so, it's not so that it's you know I'm not trying to single out like a specific app ever. Or when I write about a kid's IoT watch or something like that that has these vulnerabilities that allow you know kids to be tracked by strangers online, I don't care that much about that one specific watch or that one specific app mm-hmm. that's tracking people. It's more mm-hmm. about pointing out like. Also, by the way, this is just the entire ecosystem. This is just one of the cases that we found. You know, I like to include a lot more details in there about how a lot of IoT devices have these security concerns, and you should definitely consider that anytime you buy something, not just, you know, don't buy this one watch. You know, again, that, that, that's part of where cybersecurity journalism, I think, is, is not having the, the impact that it needs to, which is that it's great to say you need to be aware of what's going into your IoT watch or toothbrush or, or whatever. But if we are not encouraging companies or calling out companies that don't make that information easy to discover, we are dropping the ball. And I think a lot of these companies, especially you know IoT companies that are making very cheap products with low margins um, and you know of, of dubious provenance. It's really crucial to understand wh- what the what the device is, what it's try- what it does. When we talk about the latest product from from Ring, it's one thing to say, you know, isn't you know, the, you can now survey the inside of your home with a flying drone. 
But if we're not talking about what Ring has done, you know, otherwise, especially in conjunction with law enforcement, then we're, you know, then we're we're missing the point, I think, and not getting the most useful information to our readers. It sounds like then the role, of course, is multifaceted, and a lot of it is, a lot of it is providing that context that people need. It's it's not reporting on this is happening to us right now. So this example is this. It's not reporting on the individual fires that are taking place in California. It's reporting on the individual fires and their context in climate change. Am I exactly yeah. that? That's <laughs> that's that, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. And and when we don't do that, when we don't even flick at it in a story, we're not doing, I think, the best that we can. And a lot of these things, I think, are relatively easy to to at least acknowledge uh, and highlight for 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 readers. I think both of you address some pretty strong things here, right? Things that are talking about the type of coverage that doesn't help consumers. And I wanted to further explore that, continuing on not just coverage, but also maybe some types of advice. Are there, are there types of cybersecurity or online privacy advice articles, like you were saying, you know, change the setting or do this, that are not helpful, you know, more than what we've discussed? And I'm thinking of things also myself here of, things that are just too technical, things that people aren't going to get. And I, I wanted to explore that again further with you folks. You know, what, what isn't helping the reader? I specifically hate the vulnerability disclosures that are, that have like these very cool names, like, like, you know, like GoldenEye or, 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 you know, Crack or something like that. And that they, they have no real like impact on like the average person whatsoever. Like they get really popular and then you see all these, you know, researchers Rightfully so, you know, talking about, oh, this is a very dangerous vulnerability and things like that. And then you read the technical details of it and it's kind of like, oh, that person to expose this, this Bluetooth vulnerability would have to be standing right next to it and like completely unnoticed and things like that. Because I don't like that kind of coverage just because it it raises up a panic a lot of times for, for absolutely no reason. And then all of a sudden people start thinking, oh, my my phone is not safe. I can't I can't do this. I can't have my Bluetooth on while I'm on a subway or something like that. There was another scare that kind of blew up um, around the beginning of this year, I think, or at the end of last year. It was about these lightning cables that 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 could hack your phone or something like that. And that's real. You know, I, I have seen mm-hmm. Hack Five. I've seen it at DEF CON where somebody made a fake Apple like lightning cable that could siphon data off your phone without you knowing. But all of a sudden, the the LA or somewhere in California, their uh, their sheriff's office put out a warning about these things. Like, Watch out! And then all these news outlets that don't have any security reporters pick up on it and say, "Hey, don't don't trust any cables from anybody." And so, like, no one bothered reaching out to the sheriff's department office because you know I. I someone did, and and they were saying, yeah, we we haven't actually seen this. We're just telling people to watch out for it, and that was the thing. Like this was never really a risk for like anyone and the public at least, and and it was presented like it was this big, scary thing, and that's the type of coverage that I try to avoid in cybersecurity. There's definitely a challenge in explaining what kinds of vulnerabilities the consumer audience needs to be aware of uh, versus the enterprise audience. I've, doing, I've been doing over the past summer some uh, freelance work for Dark Reading, which is a much more business and enterprise-focused audience than uh, the Parallax is traditionally. And so I've really been uh, exposed now on, to, to, to both sides of that equation, where something that the business audience does need to be very aware of 
you know, especially as it affects their corporate networks, may not be something that you really have to worry about as a home consumer. And one thing that I think we really, of all the things that we drop the ball and we really need to do better at, is explaining to readers, uh, no matter where they are on the consumer to, to enterprise spectrum, how to think about what your personal OPSEC is or your corporate OPSEC is, your operational security, and to think about what the, the threat model for that looks like. One of the fascinating things about COVID and in, in the shutdown is that suddenly everyone's become their own home IT guy, which means that you have to be far more aware of your network security at home than you ever had to in the past. People are simply conducting you know, highly sensitive business and enterprise transactions over their home networks in ways that they never had before, never had the permission to do before. Exploring what that means for the home consumer, you know, is one thing that that uh, is really important. The overall issue of getting at what is OPSEC, what is a threat model, how do you determine what's actually a concern of yours? You know, you don't need a baby seat in your car if you don't have a baby, right? I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> just a little silly. So how do we how do we think about these things, and what do we do to communicate? That to the reader, I think, is, is um, you know, is, it's an ongoing issue. There's no pat answer to it, but it's something that I, I wish was more in the forefront of the kinds of reporting that we put out there. And if it were, I think we'd have less FUD, you know, fear, uncertainty, and, and doubt, and, and, and less bad reporting. The, the WhatsApp story that The Guardian ran, um, I think it was two years ago, about how WhatsApp could be hacked was completely off base, almost entirely counterfactual. And, you know, like Alfred said, a little bit of digging goes a really long way in verifying whether a story is worth reporting on. Yeah, Alfred, a similar yeah. situation happened last week also. There was a report about, you know, Iranian hackers who basically the whole concept oh, yeah, that was, was great. that, you know, <laughs> The whole the whole concept was that end to end encryption is not is no longer safe from Iranian hackers because they they were able to steal messages from people's uh, Telegram, which is another encrypted messaging app. Um, but the thing is, is that you know, it, like that's what the headline said. But the the whole point was that they they compromised the device. They didn't compromise end to end encryption. So they compromised one of the ends that it would go to. And when you have that, like that, you're not you you basically have any like anything else that you would need. But, you know, the whole presentation of it was, you know, end-to-end -end encryption is no longer safe. And it was just, it's, it's very frustrating when you see stuff. I wanted to go back to something you said here, Alfred, which is exactly on this point, right? You see things either that are overblown or they're not, you know, they're not even factually accurate with the actual details of the vulnerability. And you were talking about that example with the sheriff's office. And so I wanted to find out you know, asking both of you, let's say you see something like that. Let's say you see something that says, here's this vulnerability. My goodness, it's going to affect this many people. That's, that's like the headline. It's like, it's the sky is falling, but you dig a little deeper and you find out it's not there. My question is when you found that there is no there, there, is there a conversation of, okay, we just don't report it. Or is there a conversation of there's so much fervor being whipped up that we report on hey, don't freak out about this. I don't even know if it's so much of a binary. I wanted to figure out well, what are the next steps. Here, here's a great example of that. The super micro story that Bloomberg ran. Um, like last year. Uh, was that last year? I can't, I can't <laughs> tell time anymore. <laughs> time flies. This is the longest <laughs> March ever. 
But that story was really fascinating. There was a lot of detail in there. There was a lot of stuff that made you go, wow, this is this just confirms every suspicion that we have about China and Chinese manufacturing. And to this day, I don't know of a single news outlet that was able to reproduce any of that reporting. I may have missed something, but I'm almost certain that there that it just it it's been irreproducible. And what do you do with a story like that where it's so massive and it's it just you know it sucks all the oxygen out of the room for for a, you know it was at least a week and it can't be verified. That's really that's really really tricky. I personally just don't deal with it if, unless there's a reason to debunk it. Unless there is somebody who knows who can actually debunk the story, then I'll consider it. Um, it all, I mean, but it also depends on what else I'm working on. There's so much out there. We have to be careful, I think, about playing, you know, journalism cop. That's what Twitter is for. Yeah, you you always run the risk of amplifying a myth when you're debunking it. You know, just when you, when you say, "Hey, look, this thing is not true." There's a lot of the times where if you do that, there's going to be a lot of people who say, you know, I didn't even hear about this thing. And then they look into it and they say, you know, you know, I disagree with you. I think it is true. And then you become kind of the person that's helping spread that rumor. So for me, if I see something that isn't exactly true or, deserve, or needs debunking, I kind of wait until it reaches a high point for, for me to do that. Because otherwise, you know, I'm running the risk of, of drawing even more attention to something that doesn't really deserve it. That's happened a few times. Like I, I will get um, an embargoed vulnerability for something and I will look through it and, and think this isn't really anything. And then, you know, when the embargo lifts and I see a whole bunch of places are talking about it, then it becomes, okay, well then I should like write something debunking this or if, or if it's, you know, if no one has written about it, then I just kind of pass on and, you know, it was just something that ended up in my inbox at some Everything you folks have been saying has also helped me understand what you wanted to not just see less of, right, but what you wanted to see more of. And I wanted to return to that. Particularly, Seth, you were talking about how there should be a greater understanding, a greater presentation of operational security. You know, how every person has their own threat model. And that threat model, right, that might call for even a different encrypted messaging app. You know, not every messaging app provides the exact same capabilities. And there might be some that are better for what you need. That's that's things that, you know, we've seen here at Malwarebytes as well. And so I wanted to open that question up again, and let you kind of dive deeper into it. What do you wish you saw more of in cybersecurity journalism? Funding. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I just relaunched the, the Parallax newsletter and I've got a, a Patreon going finally. And I got to say that there are so many outrageously talented journalists who have worked, you know, over the past 30 and 40 years in cybersecurity and privacy journalism who are fully capable of continuing it, but just simply cannot make a living at it. Cybersecurity focused companies, I think, need to be investing in journalism in an altruistic way. Certainly, if, if the president can get tax write-offs for his shenanigans, these companies can get write-offs for funding independent journal journalism. But I think that the more journalists that are looking at cybersecurity, the more journalists that are integrating cybersecurity issues into their own beats, 
you know, whether, whether, you know, environment may be a stretch, but certainly there's plenty of other privacy and, and, you know, computer security issues that do affect other beats and to, you know, consider how those fit in and, and where, what role does cybersecurity play in these things? Is, is there a cybersecurity concern or privacy concern, you know, for the local metro crime beat? These are things that, that need to be thought about and, and, and discussed more. And the way that security is starting to be more integrated into tech development from the get-go, I think that, that cybersecurity journalism needs to be a, you know, an A1 concern for stories far beyond uh, the beat itself. Alfred, what about you? Yeah, I agree with Seth, actually, about the, the threat modeling. I would love to see more of that in in tech journalism, cybersecurity reporting, just because it, when you don't threat model properly, when you're writing something, it's extremely counterintuitive. Like if you tell your uncle to start using Tor browser for, for like <laughs> doing average things online, like they're, they're going to be turned off the next time you, you try to give them advice on, on, you know, something actually normal. And yeah, it's just when you don't threat model properly, your advice is not going to be respected in the future. And I, I think that, that, you know, it's hard to get that back. And then the other thing I would really like to see in cybersecurity journalism is just, you know, we talked, we started this podcast talking about how this is a part of mainstream culture. Now this is everything, you know, you have teens, you know, hacking into Twitter, you have, you know, kids DDoSing their school district so that they don't have to go to Zoom university. And, you know, it's, it's a part of like mainstream like culture now, but the thing is like, we haven't seen that in news right? Like, you don't, mm -hmm. you, you obviously there's cybersecurity reporters for tech outlets like CNET, um, you know, Seth's starting his own outlet at the Parallax, but you don't really see, and obviously the Washington Post, New York Times, these, these big newsrooms have the finances for a cybersecurity reporter, but, you know, your, your local news station like WKC, whatever, it, they're not going to have a cybersecurity reporter. And then that's when you get these like random reports about, oh, like, this hacker like blew up a computer and it's, it's it's extremely frustrating when you when you see stuff like that because when you think about the lack of cybersecurity knowledge like across the country like it's not among our readers you know it's, it's when you when you think about it you know i talking about election security a lot of the times the issues are with these local counties that only have like five volunteers or something like that they don't have an it staff and that's that's really who we should be reaching to. But I would hope that they're reading our writing, but most likely they're getting a lot of their news from like their local news station and they are heavily missing out on these resources. I think there does also have to be one other major consideration that we haven't we haven't even begun to really talk about and, and I think you could do, you know, hours on is, you know, where ethics and and you know and morals lie in cybersecurity and privacy decisions. What makes an ethical cybersecurity decision? There was talk for, for a hot minute a few years ago about ethical hackers, which you mm -hmm. know I, I think is, is a term that many hackers don't like because it implies that they don't have ethics. Certainly there are some who, ha who may have ethics different from others, but you know ultimately hackers, I think more than any, well, cybersecurity and privacy hackers, I think more than any other form of tech developer, think more about what they're doing in general in sort of approach their chosen field almost in, in a, you know, heroic mindset. I think a great uh, example of this most recently is uh, Marcus Hutchins, you know, who started off doing not good things, you know, in cybersecurity. And then WannaCry came out and he 
by that point, he had, you know, figured out a little bit more about his life. He started looking at WannaCry and he was able to shut it down before it caused widespread damage in the U.S. And I think that kind of where are the decisions being made? Who's making the decisions? You know, the controversy that we're seeing at, at Facebook right now is, you know, is a great case study, uh, unfortunately, in real time. But it's a great case study of where do ethics come into play in privacy considerations. So I'd like to see a lot more of that. I've seen so much of that. Well, not so much, right? But I have seen more of that over the years. And I would agree that it is refreshing. It is refreshing to see that we're seeing coverage that is looking at who are the decision makers, who are the people inside a company that allow a system to be built that feeds us things that are reactionary, feeds us things that are they're detrimental, you know, to like our mental health sometimes. And it is good. It is good to see that kind of coverage. I, and that's it. Like, I, I very much agree. I'm, I'm happy to see that these companies aren't entirely monoliths, you know, that can just be like, well, Facebook decided this, you know, it's okay, this team did it. And how did that team go about it? Um, I think it right. is smart coverage, right? Seth, Alfred, I just wanted to thank you again for being on today's show. Great. Thank you very much. It's been yeah, a thanks. lot of fun. Thanks for having us. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Jamie Court, president of Consumer Watchdog, about the value of Cybersecurity Awareness Month for the consumer. <laughs> <laughs>